0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the PA Path Podcast. Today, we meet with Lieutenant Colonel Kyle M. Johnson. Colonel Johnson is the Inter-Service Physician Assistant Program Director with the 381st Training Squadron at Joint Base San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston. This is the largest PA program in the country, with over 500 students enrolled annually by the Department of Defense and Homeland Security. It includes members of the United States Air Force, Coast Guard, Marines, Navy, and Army. Colonel Johnson himself was commissioned in June of 2008 through the Health Profession Scholarship Program in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Resolute Support, and Operation Freedom Sentinel as a PA. Colonel Johnson completed his PA degree with the University of South Alabama, and he completed his Doctor of Science degree in Emergency Medicine Studies with Joint Army Baylor Program in Waco, Texas. Colonel Johnson, welcome and thanks for joining us. I appreciate
1: that. Thank you very much. So I just wanted to start off by anything that I say. Basically, the views expressed are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. So let's get started, Kyle. Let's talk about your path to becoming a PA, because it looks like you became a PA in the civilian sector before you joined the military through the Health Professions Scholarship Program. You want to start with your path. What led you to becoming a PA? So basically what led me to being a PA was I was that sports
1: person who was always out there incidentally getting hurt. And so I went to my orthopedic surgeon or sports med doctor pretty regularly, and they did a great job of basically balancing the needs of myself versus the needs of medicine. And I really appreciated the tact of here's how to get you to where you want to go. Specifically for me, that was getting back on the field because as a 12, 14, 18 year old, that's what you want to do. And... When I was going through school, I always thought I knew I wanted to do medicine and I was pursuing the medical school. And actually during an ultimate Frisbee summer league, I was playing Ultimate and one of my teammates was a physician assistant. Learned a little bit more about what it was, learn about the schooling, the autonomy, the ability to switch between career fields and all that greatly interest me to the extent of going into my senior semester, I actually changed going from medical school to PA school, even after I had already gone through the brutal aspects of taking the MCAT. So better work-life balance was what drew me into the physician assistant aspects of medicine and uh, basically pursued a track from there. As she said, I went to South Alabama, Mobile for PA school. And during my first semester, my one of my really good friends, Adam Van and I, they were both interested in the military said let's just go down the recruiter and at the time there was not any scholarships for the army air force navy or coast guard or any others but the air force was starting up a health professional scholarship program first time ever for physician assistants that coming up month so we went ahead and jumped on board and both applied both got one of the national scholarships out of the five two came from south alabama so a little plug for south alabama there And we both joined the Air Force with basically they paid for portions of our school, and then we owed them time for the repayment process. And that's my path of how I started civilian and moved my way towards military.
0: So I just have a quick follow-up, which is what was the difference for you as a civilian PA student in South Alabama once you had signed up for the Health Profession Scholarship Program? Is there any palpable difference of being on that track other than that you're receiving funding to go to school? It alleviated some stress,
1: and I know that sounds strange by how it alleviates stress by joining the military, but instead of going through federal funds and grants and having multiple areas of trying to basically pay for a PA school, I was able to secure funding, and part of it is you get a BAH stipend for housing as an E5, and that allows about $1,500 extra a month where I was making zero. So it changed a lot of aspects because now I could focus more on the scholastics versus trying to augment my funds, ask my parents, apply for additional grants and funding areas. So it took away a lot of that stress. And outside of that, I was in active reserve. So there was actually no military component until I graduated.
2: So once you finished up school in Alabama, then what happens next?
1: So after I graduated South Alabama, basically myself and Adam Van went to basic officer training. There's multiple variations of it, but basically that's what we did is a training where they teach you how to be a military officer. And that was at Maxwell Air Force Base in August of 2008. Now, a lot of people would say, oh my gosh, Alabama in the summer, so the people who were coming there who were going from the North thought it was miserable. Me who and Adam who were already from the deep South even more south than Maxwell figured it was just another day in in Mobile. And then that was a six or eight week training program before we went to our first base. And my first base, I had the luxury of going to Anchorage, Alaska.
2: What did your day-to-day life look like there?
1: At Elmendorf, I was in family practice. So my day consisted of basically balancing the typical workload of a family practice clinic, which is anywhere from 15 to 20 patients a day, plus walk-ins, plus extra duties, plus whatever they bring you on the telephone, all the typical stressors of family medicine. But I loved it and enjoyed it because I was practicing a very different type of medicine than what I was used to from South Alabama, going through the inner city challenges of low socioeconomic incomes from a lot of the areas where I worked versus going to a military platform where you had no limitations associated with healthcare access and things along those lines. So it actually changed my Thought process and availability of what I could do. Military does some uh, insurance companies do where basically everything comes through the PCM. So if you want to go see your orthopedic, you have to see your PCM. If you want to go to PT, you have to see your PCM. So we are basically the button for all of
2: medicine. Just in follow up on that, that in a lot of ways, you become the hub, right? You become the hub in, of the spokes of healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about how that maybe is better than what you say on the civilian side? It's hard to say better. I would say different
1: in some areas better, some areas worse. Just the other day I was talking to my dad and he said, yeah, I'm going to go see my orthopedist because my foot hurts or his podiatrist. And on the civilian side, you just go see your specialist. Now in saying that a lot of times that specialist may not be aware of your other conditions, or they may be aware, but they're not taking care of and treating all those. Whereas when you have one central component who is aware of your hypertension, your diabetes, Your foot pain and all those you can treat holistically rather than treating the individual component of what that specialty follows. So I think there are definitely some benefits to having that holistic approach. Now
0: uh, you said Elmendorf. That's quite the contrast to South Alabama. Just of interest to me, my father was an Air Force military police officer in Elmendorf back in the 1950s, and he tells this grand story that I just want to check in and see if it's possibly true. With being on the base and encountering a grizzly bear on the base that they had to try to manage to keep people safe. Was that an occurrence 70 years later when you were there?
1: We didn't have necessarily, there was bears that were seen on base, but it was not, it was the norm, little black bears who are just the raccoons of almendorf area. They're just the newest sensitive. The bigger problem we actually had was noops. And a lot of people don't think moose as a great concern but the video they show you when you first come is basically do not pick moose do not get near them and then they show examples of how moose can trample you we actually had a and i don't know the correct term for a baby moose calf who basically got trapped in our lower area outside of the hospital and they had to sedate it to get it out and up the stairs to get back to mom you never want to get in between mom and any sort of animal. So that was one of the challenges that we definitely had to deal with. Another interesting one, just a personal story. My wife was out shoveling snow while pregnant. Again, I was at work, so it's not my fault, guys. I'm sorry. But my wife is fantastic. And my dog was out there with her while she was shoveling the snow. And my dog kept trying to get my wife's attention. She had her headphones on. The neighbor is trying to get her attention. They don't know what's going on. And then finally, she turns around and she thinks it's my dog nuzzling her back again. And it's a baby moose. Wow. And that's just in the middle of the city. So those are common currencies for both bears and moves and things along those lines, so. Sure. And how long were you stationed at Elmendorf before you went to your next duty? I was stationed at Elmendorf for three years with a six-month stint of that three years in Afghanistan.
0: Okay. And was that in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, Resolute Support, or, or Freedom Sentinel? That was Enduring Freedom. Okay. So, yeah, so that was my took, first tour. Yeah, and, and could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think when I talk to students about the military as an option for a career, there's a lot of pros to it. There's a, the economics to it, the pension, the opportunity to see the world, to experience things that most people never get to experience. But the one caveat is you can be deployed into a theater combat. Talk a little bit about that you know, mentality for you as a PA, and also, is it a myth? Or is it true that the organizational units that you're supporting, you're such a high value asset to the military team that you're somebody they really look out to support and protect?
1: So absolutely. A
0: lot of the times
1: you'll hear the synonym DOC and just basically anyone medical is DOC. It doesn't matter if you're enlisted, a nurse practitioner, DOC. They're all called DOC. That's just how it is because anyone medical is identified as that. And they know that if you get injured when you're not going to be able to take care of the other injured. We've done some increased benefits associated with first aid and prolonged field care and some of those teaching it to the lowest level, but definitely having the medical available and healthy is one of the key components. In regards to deploying, I got to my first base, October of 2008, and I started pre-deployment training January, February of 2009. So I definitely was not a PA long before I deployed. My commander asked if I was up for the challenge, because usually they try to wait for about at least a year. And I said, I joined to do exactly that. I joined to travel. I joined to deploy. I joined to try to treat our fellow soldiers, airmen in battle. And so I went to Kabul, Afghanistan at a roll tube clinic, which basically is a clinic that has some lab support, rad support, but does not have CT scans or any sort of surgical capabilities. And it was definitely interesting and challenging for early in medicine because you can see these processes that you were told you were never going to see. An example was, as soon as I got there, one of my key responsibilities was basically looking at all chest x-rays of any of our Afghans who were coming on base, screening for tuberculosis. Not something that I would have ever done stateside four months into being an APA. So definitely some challenges that I would not have experienced. But at the same time, I was able to participate in some unique events that I thought were, was really rewarding. So I was part of a what we call provincial reconstruction team. And basically what I did is I was the medical component on the team, working with civil engineers, commander, financial experts, and we went to an Afghan command and basically we're teaching them the military methods that we have been taught to try to help bring them up to a more experienced level of military community. And so I was working with the Afghan doctors, medics, to develop a training program to help them in wartime medicine.
0: That's great. I I had the unique privilege in 2012 to represent PAEA for the Joining Forces Initiative that Michelle Obama's office was doing with Jill Biden. And we went out to Bethesda, Maryland to learn about medevac and how we were treating the combat casualties that were occurring in Afghanistan as compared to World War II, Vietnam. And what was really extraordinary is the rapid aspect of the Air Force getting people out of the combat theater to Germany, and then rapidly stabilizing them and getting them back to the States, and then doing a much more intensive rehabilitation here in the States, which seems to have really made a difference in saving lives and limbs in many cases. So I'm just curious from your perspective, having been there and participating in that, what were your observations of that system? Absolutely. Air power is described as a key
1: component for battle but it's also a key component for medicine because when you have air superiority you can do exactly as you said you can get those evacs out quicker and easier versus what we're concerned about with upcoming war when we're looking at some more near peers that we could experience where if we don't have that you might have more of a prolonged field care type situation where you have to hold on to a patient for 12 14 24 48 hours At again as i described a smaller role to clinic that does have limited supplies versus my second deployment i was at bagram which is again a larger hospital or was a larger hospital that had full capabilities surgical capabilities and just the variations of even evacuating to one of those hospitals makes a big difference in long-term survival rates not only of true survival but also as you said life on my site because we could at least do some life-saving interventions or interventions that would increase the sustainability of a WEM potentially, so that the ability to have those CASVACs and Aravacs made all the difference in the world.
2: So tell us a little bit about your transition then into the education sphere. Where did your path take you beyond that?
1: So HK sphere I've actually, it's truly built into my DNA. I did not think it was, and I never thought I would be here. My mom was an elementary school teacher. My sister is an elementary school teacher. My aunt was principal. Both my grandmothers were substitute teachers and my dad taught at a university. So it's in my blood. And I said, I'm never doing any of that. And then of course, as soon as I got to Elmendorf after I got back from my first deployment, I took on a phase two student from the university of Anchorage, Alaska and was their preceptor for family medicine. So it started early on in my career within the first year. And since then I've always had some phase two involvement. Sorry, phase two is what we call clinical here. So clinical involvement. And from there, it's just always been something I've enjoyed going through in the emergency medicine fellowship. My follow-on tour after completing that one was being the phase two preceptor for emergency medicine. Not only did I do the family med preceptor, I also did the emergency medicine preceptor. And again, just love having students who especially at that clinical period where they can start tying all the aspects from phase one together and you can start saying, hey, when we talk about liver failure and you see the highlighter yellow and then actually finally see that liver failing patient, you can see, oh, this is what they mean or just, again, different disease processes, how they're presenting and how the patients present. So I've always been involved in the clinical aspect and then from there, I worked with at Lackland in 2014, 15. I worked with New shoes Uniform University for their nurse practitioner program. And I was the preceptor for one of the DNP students for about a year and a half and had an appointment with them. And from there, continuing on to now I was at a position to come to IPAP to teach at our phase one or didactic component. And I was brought in as an emergency medicine and I'm teaching currently radiology. And Radiology, again, falls, it's very well nestled within the abridged medicine realm because we use all different components of typical radiology all the way to the less common ones to make sure that we're treating our patients and getting them the interventions as needed. And then from there, I was here for about two years before Colonel Ellis, at the time Colonel Melanie Ellis, was due to retire. And with the new ARC-PA updated guidelines where you have to have three years of higher education, being here for two years on top of the DNP receptor, slotting well to transition into the role here as the program director. Roundabout answer of lots of different routes that kind of showed me that I was going to get here eventually. And it just all filtered in. And that's the way a lot of military careers work. You never know the trajectory you're going to go. Leadership always has an idea. So I can thank Colonel Ellis for that. But at the same time, I think there's always a plan, whether you know it or not, to get you in the right places.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think most of us who have gone into education have had maybe a little bit of a circuitous path. But to your point, I've always said it's a bit of a recessive gene. And if you have it and you tend to gravitate toward those opportunities. So tell us about the path as a student to the IPAP program. It's clearly a little different to get into the PA program through the military than it is. Most of the rest of the civilian program. So, why don't you talk a little bit about students' path to the IPAD program? Even that is a
1: little bit challenging because uh, amongst different branches, each branch has their own specific guidelines. We do have a overarching component of here's the the minimums and what you need to get an IPAD. But each service has their own specific standards between the Army and Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard. And what's also different compared to most of our civilian colleagues is you don't have to have a bachelor's degree. So you actually get awarded your bachelor's degree through University of Nebraska Medical Center, when you graduate the didactic phase, so the end of our 16 month program of phase one, and then you get your master's degree from UNMC as well, once you graduate phase two or the clinical portion. But there's a lot of other challenges that our students have to overcome because if they do not have the already established bachelor degree, They have to obtain courses through whatever means they can. And that can be challenging because when you're working a full-time job in the middle of a foreign country, and you're trying to take courses at night through a different time zone, through a different zip code can definitely be challenging. All of them are superior in what they do. They are the creme de la creme that come to this because again, we have such unique circumstances of you have to meet time on station which means you have to basically live in one area for a short period of time because we don't want to have someone move who just moved because of, again, cost concerns. You have to have a certain amount of time in. So you can't be too junior and you can't be too senior because we want to make sure that we get the the time and payback out of the students. And then on top of that, you have to add in the academic rigors of, again, a lot of civilians have this problem of those who are doing a second career or doing a career on top of getting the additional educational components that they need to satisfy the requirements to get in the program. So a couple additional unique challenges, because if you happen to PCS, it may reset your clock and you now just potentially have to do another two or three years new base before you can even apply to the program. So there's definitely some very unique challenges that our students have to overcome and basically plan out uh, probably a four- or five-year program to get them into the program before they even start the uh, 29-month program.
0: And Al, you've got up to 500 students enrolled in one year, so I presume that you have a couple different classes running at a time. How do you manage all that? It it, it seems like you would need to have an extraordinarily large group of faculty to manage it. And that's exactly it. I don't manage it; we manage it. Uh,
1: my my faculty are fantastic again, bar none. Some of the best people I've ever worked with. But yeah, we have greater than 500 actually uh, running at any time throughout our phase one and phase two cohorts. We're one of the few that have basically simultaneous running cohorts, and which is why we can do some of the additional things that other programs may not be able to. One of those is basically having students who have major life events that occur, and they can actually recycle into a previous class. So instead of waiting a full year, they actually only have to wait two to three months, which is a great benefit, especially because the needs of force, we need that person because they've already been slotted to go into that role, and we need them fill that role eventually. So there are some great things that larger staff or larger numbers allow us to do. Yeah, we have 20-plus sites across the U.S., including some overseas. Those overseas ones are on federal grounds, and that's how we have worked it through ArcPA to allow the slight exception of policy where it says it has to be on U.S. soil, technically federal grounds, or U.S. soil. And we utilize a lot of preceptors across those bases and those 25 sites to help us basically facilitate the Phase two side And then the phase one side, we have, uh, again, a very large cohort of cadre, both who work directly for the program and those who are teaching into the program from various fields like our pharmacy branch or our anatomy and physiology branch that aren't specifically dedicated to IPAP, but
0: uh, allow a great component to teach in. So maybe the plus of being a IPAP faculty member is that That somebody's going to be taking your students, you don't have the same stresses perhaps that civilian programs have to try to find partners to take care of the phase two students. Somebody in the chain of command can just order it to happen and it happens. And maybe the downside is you just got to So juggling a lot more in terms of the courses and number of students. For the most
1: part, yes. Yeah, we definitely have the, here's where our sites are. They've already been vetted. We already have memorandums in place to say, we're going to send X number of students to instead of having to find new sites. But as we talked about, the additional challenge is anyone from that site can potentially deploy or PCS. So now, where most places have a standard preceptor who will be in place for 10, 15, 20, 70 years, as it fell out, like one of my preceptors from South Alabama was, we have someone who's going to leave every three or every four or be gone for seven or eight months, and we have to shut down that program or that portion of the program for a short period of time, and therefore they have to either go to a sister site or work additional uh, memorandum of understanding with maybe the VA or civilian entity within. So we do run into some of those same challenges that our civilian counterparts do, but by and large, we have a greater pool within that community because they're all very large military hospitals and communities that can easier support some of those slight changes.
0: So your graduates, technically, if I'm not mistaken because you fall under federal law, not state law, they don't have to have licensure in the states. Do they have to have certification? Is that what you do to retain your ARCPA accreditation? Yes, exactly. So
1: based on, again, that similar to what I was talking about with our overseas location, since we're working on a federal institution, we don't have to have an official state license, but our board certification, NCCPA board certification, Basically awards us the ability to, as you said, meet the standards per RPA of being nationally accredited through the RPA system. Now, many of the PAs do have state licenses as well because we will work on the civilian side just to get a different patient population. Because again, I have a very unique patient population of zero to ninety who have overall pretty good healthcare with limitations but what i end up doing especially being in medicine i like working downtown as some of our civilian hospitals where i work with a very different and unique patient population of those who are homeless low socioeconomic those who have drug abuse alcohol abuse some of the things that i'm not going to see nearly as much of within the military system to just broaden my scope
2: so on graduation where do your graduates tend to go? What sorts of, you talked about the population that you would typically see, do they do many of them remain in the military for an extended period of time? Do they tend to s- scatter into the civilian world? Or is there a norm or is it a, a broad swath of experiences post-graduation?
1: It's definitely a broad swath. Part of it depends on what branch because each branch uses their PAs to a different ability. So our Air Force tend to go more towards a clinic, specifically our a retiree clinic to make sure we're continuing to build upon the skills from PA school, whereas our army colleagues tend to go to a unit and become more operational medicine. And then our Navy and Coast Guard is a little bit more clinic, but they definitely have some operational billets and our Navy uh, counterparts also tend to be a little bit more on the operational side of medicine. And that's anywhere in the world. And then of course we do s- still have some Guard and Reserve units that come through IPAP as well, army, Guard and Reserve. And then therefore they will go to the civilian sector to whatever job they have waiting for them on the outside. So we have people who go mostly into the family medicine aspect, but then when you talk about our garden reserve, they can go into any aspect from there. All military PAs will work initially as a quote unquote family medicine PA initially, and that's where our bread and butter lies. That's where we train them to be. And then from there, they can do additional training to basically go different tracks.
0: So those tracks are typically emergency medicine, orthopedics, what else, surgery? So for our
1: doctorate programs, it is emergency medicine, surgery, orthopedic, psychiatry, and education. That's for the Air Force. There's I'm more familiar with the Air Force side of things, of course. There are some potentially other, other additional tracks that some of the other branches have outside of the direct educational to get you into a different field. There are other additional trainings like special operations so more operational medicine. There is flight medicine. So aeronautical PA, because again, you have to understand the challenges that you're going to run into at 10,000 feet versus what you're going to have at the ground level. Same thing. We have those who get trained in things like dive chamber, because again, for our Navy colleagues, you're going to be diving or any other branches. So there's many different tracks that you can go, honestly, too many and even name, which is another reason why military is such a great career because even just in the 15 years I've been in, I've been a family med PA, flight med PA, got my emergency medicine doctorate, am an emergency medicine fellow. I've been a flight commander. So basically in charge of an ER, so more of an admin side, I've been the director of operations for a squadron. So in charge of overseeing operations for 540 people. And additionally, now as an educational instructor, and finally now as the program director for IPAP, So a very wide breadth of jobs, and it keeps it interesting, keeps it challenging, always keeps me on my toes to learn new medicine, challenge, and uh, overcome unique challenges. And
0: it sounds like if you really want to set yourself up for success, if you can get one of those billets, which I'm sure there aren't that many, with the, the reserves, go to IPAP for your military training, you get paid to go to school, and then you go out and you do your service as a, a member of the National Guard or the, the military reserves. That's not a bad option.
1: No, absolutely. It's it's a fantastic route, even if you're active duty or with HPSB, getting paid to go to school and any job is a great way of going because instead of having to foot all those bills, getting paid as well as having your school paid for, Again, like I said, that alleviated a lot of the challenges that I initially had
2: when I was going through South. So
1: it really can be a game changer and take a lot of stress off.
0: Excellent.
2: We first would like to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was great to hear about this just really unique and different program that your path to becoming a PA in the program itself and the world of being a PA in the military is just a very different, it's a different look than I think what most are accustomed to. Before we go, we always like to give our guests an opportunity to uh, share some parting thoughts. If there's anything else that we didn't give you the opportunity to say, or uh, if you have some words of advice for someone who may be considering a career in the military as a PA, we'd love to hear that.
1: Absolutely. But I'm going to have to put the shameless plug in. I've absolutely loved every second of my military career. I've been to Alaska. I've been to Germany. I've been to San Antonio. I've been to Destin, Florida and two stand to afghanistan both of which i thoroughly enjoyed uh, i know it sounds strange to talk about how you enjoyed deployment but i didn't train to do that you want to help people so definitely a very rewarding yet challenging ability to get into the military as well as stay in but there's so many avenues and so many paths in which you can basically the trajectory of your career that just make the military, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, or two years, whatever you do, a great time and ability to work with people and careers and positions in which you may or may not ever get a chance to otherwise. Again, we always say that we're the 1% because 99% of America never joins, and that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It was one of those things where, selfishly, I initially started doing it because I wanted to travel and get school paid for and then realized that it was absolutely something that I loved and a unique adventure that I can't get anywhere else. Anyone who's interested, I talk to your recruiters. There's a lot of different avenues to join. It doesn't necessarily all lead to being a PA, but at the same time, there's definitely many routes to get there. So that, that'd be one thing. And the only other thing that I have learned from leadership is grow where you're planted. And that's the best advice I can give because whether you're working in family practice, whether you're in an admin role, whether you're in the ER, take whatever you have and grow with it because you're always going to be learning. You're always going to be challenged and don't ever be complacent because that's when you're at risk for harming patients. So again, grow where you're planted and that's the best advice.
0: That is great advice. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that and I'll credit you on that. I'm teaching a group of physiology students who are juniors and seniors at the university next Monday. And that's one of the things they wanna learn is how do you maximize your opportunity in the workplace? And I think that's a really great parting thought. So thank you, Kyle.
1: Absolutely. I will have to say though, I still that from Colonel Ellis as well as many other Air Force leaders. So I'll, I'll give the shout out to Colonel Ellis who's been one of my mentors.
0: Yeah, and luckily we we were able to, to get her convinced to come to our program. So we're, we're glad to have her. We'd like to thank our guest Colonel Johnson for taking the time to enlighten us on the PA program that prepares to serve our armed forces and Homeland Security units throughout the world. We also want to thank him and his colleagues for their service to our nation. Tune in next time as we speak with another leader from the PA profession.